Hello and welcome everybody to Weishu Radio. My name is Nicola Chan, I'm your host, and today in the hot seat is Simon Alexander Ong. Hello, Simon. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. I grew up in the southeast of England, a town called Darford in Kent, to two Malaysian Chinese parents. And when I grew up, I thought that success was defined by my job title. Be a banker, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an accountant. And so when I moved to London for university, I ended up studying economics, graduated in the middle of 2007, which was probably the worst possible time to begin a career in finance. I started that job 14 months later. I was out of a job because the first company I began with was Lehman Brothers. But that acted as the catalyst for me making the longest journey that we as humans make, the inches from our heads to our hearts. Never an easy journey, but the most exciting and fulfilling that you will ever embark on. And that led me to discovering what I really wanted to do with my life and what success meant for me. And it led me to what I now get to do today, which is to coach individuals, executives, entrepreneurs, celebrities, to speak on stages across the world for organizations such as Google, Microsoft, and Salesforce, and at public conferences. And one of the best things that happened to me in 2020, aside from becoming a father for the first time, was landing a book deal with Penguin to write my first book, Energize, which was published in April 22. Amazing. And that's when I met you, isn't it? In Carfest, mm. you were doing a talk and you were um, promoting your new book, Energize, which I now have. <laughs> and I actually took the book with me to Thailand and I had all high hopes of reading it, but I ended up so busy that I couldn't sit down with the book at all. So I ended up getting your audiobook as well, which I definitely enjoy. Fantastic. Yeah, a lot of people have enjoyed the audiobook, they've told me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is why I love podcasts, because podcasts help me so much on my journey. And it's something that you can listen to as you go about your everyday tasks when you're driving from A mm -hmm. to B. And it's like we're always absorbing information from the outside world. So quite a lot of it can be negative, like social media or just the media in general. So mm. I feel like if you're always brainwashing yourselves in some way, so you may as well brainwash yourself with something positive. <laughs> I love that. So I wanted to ask you, obviously, we're talking about energy today and your book is called Energized. And I mentioned to you before we hit record that I've been moving house. And mm. so feng shui, which is uh, a the, you know, the chi form of energy, which Chinese people mm -hmm. talk about in terms of your home and how you should have it positioned has been a hot topic in my house at the moment. And it's definitely not feng shui right now where I'm in the process of moving and it's feeling very cluttered and very stressful. And I'm wondering, is feng shui something that you believe in? Is it something that you talk about? And do you have any tips for me and anyone listening? <laughs> sure. So I do follow a little bit of, uh, of feng shui. Uh, but if I'm honest, the way I see it, it's more about having a, a simple decluttered home uh, than it is by following any sort of methodology. Because for me, as long as your home is organized, tidy and clean, your mind is also clear in terms of its ability to think. The last thing we want is a cluttered home. And so for me, that's probably the most important is that the beauty of your position in moving uh, from one place to another is you get the opportunity to start with a clean slate. You know, you can decide how you want to put things in the room. You can decide how to lay things out and decide which things you don't need anymore. You're able to discard the things you don't want and keep the things that bring you joy. So for me, it's far more important to make sure that you have a home that is organized and clutter free. 
And I was going to ask that actually, if your home in some ways is like a metaphor for your mind, because yeah. people do say like tidy home, tidy mind. And when you're saying getting rid of things in a way it is like your mindset, getting rid of the things that no longer serve you, like limiting beliefs and self doubt, mm. and then putting in the things that are working for you. Mm, definitely. I, I think it's very apt as an analogy. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm sitting down to work, I find myself far more productive when I know where things are and things are just clean. Whereas if I'm going into a room and it's looking like a mess, you know, things are strewn everywhere. Uh, I'm already stressed. You know, before I've even sat down and opened my laptop, I'm already feeling stressed. And so I think that when we optimize our environment, we've also got to consider our physical environment. If we make sure the physical environment is conducive to deep work, then what happens is we're more able to enter a state of flow quicker. And I'm going to ask you about flow later on as well. But you just got me thinking then. I wonder how it was for you in lockdown then working from home. Mm. I, I'm not going to lie. It was one of the toughest experiences I have ever gone through. And it was because I had a lot of things come together at one time. So in April 2020, we entered the country's first lockdown. Uh, I also became a father for the first time in that same month. And it was also the month that I got the book deal with Penguin. Now, individually, uh, those things, getting a book deal and becoming a father for the first time, are great life events. But all happening together in the background of COVID made it particularly challenging. And so managing that without being able to go anywhere, because everywhere was sharp, was like juggling a lot of plates at once. You know, I was writing for maybe 20 minutes and then it was change the nappy time and then I'm back to writing again and then it was you know putting putting our daughter to sleep and and so I did have to let go of a few things during that time but in order to keep my focus I made sure that the area that I was doing my writing was kept clear throughout now I could move things to another place for the time being but I made sure that the space I had was conducive to the writing because I knew it was going to be a long process and I wanted to make it as easy as possible interesting you say that I've been listening to a lot of Gabriella Bernstein as well and she says mm. she went to this place it was like a white room with all white furniture and it was just a nice clean split mm. uh, slate for her to be able to write her book and so I've been thinking about doing the same thing in my new house to create a space to continue my book mm. um, so you know the saying where your attention goes energy flows and I wanted to ask you because I know you do a lot of business talks and obviously in the corporate world not everybody is talking about manifestation and you know more spiritual side of things so i'm i'm interested in your experience of sending out your attention and getting things back if you see it as manifestation if you use it at all and if you talk to your clients about that yeah absolutely i mean i may not always use the term manifestation uh but the concepts i share are absolutely similar you know whether it's with clients who are not in the corporate world uh or whether it's clients in the corporate world focusing our energy and attention on the things we want actually increases the odds of it happening. And the reason is because we have to first see it in the mind before we can create it in reality. If you look at the devices you use, the clothes you wear, the things you buy, all of those things were first created in the seed of someone's imagination. So for me, it is absolutely important to understand where you must channel your focus and attention towards. Now, the issue for many people is they don't know what that is. You know, you can ask them, what don't you want? They might say, I don't want to work in this job anymore. I don't want to be doing this anymore. But then when you ask them, so what do you want? 
for many is a tough question because we've not really reflected on what is it we want out of life or what our version of success is. But once we know that, once we're clear on that path, it awakens one of the greatest sources of energy that we have within us. Mm. What Focusing on what you don't want leads you to what you do want. Mm, well, knowing what you want, yeah. No, having a bit of clarity as to what it is you want. Because if you, if you have a look at society around you, what you'll notice is that many people are busy, but they're not going anywhere. And also many are exhausted, not because they're physically doing too much, but because they're doing too little of the things that bring them joy. And they're often running someone else's race. Mm. It's interesting you say that because I just told you before we hit record that I've been involved in Chinese New Year mm. and we did 23 days of shows and it was lion dance performance, which is actually mm. very hard. Both the head and the tail are quite difficult. Um, and I did that alongside my fitness job and everything else and then moving house as well, which mm. was something that was unplanned and it just came to me. So it was <laughs> juggling lots of things at once. But I found myself with so much energy mm. and I realized it's because it's something that I'm really passionate about. So it's something that I really want to do. And mm. I guess it's like where Beyonce said she was in flow. She was doing something she enjoyed. She forgot to eat. She forgot to sleep. So it's a little bit like that. But obviously, in the general terms of life, you need to find a bit more balance. Mm. Definitely. And I think that when you when you talk about the fact that you did those number of shows and you still had the energy and you had to move houses well, and you had these other things to deal with. What we can take from that is that when we do things that energize us, we actually get more energy. So, you know, when you do the activities, the tasks, the projects that give you energy, that excites you, that energizes you. And that helps you to create a bit of momentum. And, you know, when we when we touch on the word flow, that's why people do things like that. And well, think about when they look back, did that time really go? Did I really spend that many days doing this? Because every minute doing it was joy for them. That was them enjoying that blissful state of flow. I think it's also important to have an end. So as I said, mm. there was 23 days. So I knew I only had to sustain my energy <laughs> for those 23. Whereas if it was my job, it probably would be exhausting to do, to do mm. that much. Mm. So my next question is about anime. I know that you've got a little daughter. She's probably a bit young for anime at the moment. But my 11-year-old is obsessed with it. And I see these characters and they seem to have some sort of power source. They talk about mm. powering up and levering, le leveling up. And it seems like they are channeling their chi and then like mm. exploding it out, whether it be a fight scene or whatever. And I'm wondering if like, for example, before you came on, I got down on the floor and I did some push-ups. Mm. <laughs> I wanted to raise my vibration so that I could match your energy and we could have a good conversation. Mm. And I've seen a, a lovely TED talk by a lady called Amy Cuddy, and she talks mm. about power posing. So she yeah. stands in certain stances to raise her energy. And I'm interested to know if, if that's something that you do before you go on stage to do a big talk to a big group of people. Short answer, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think that we perform our best when we are in a, in a peak state. You, you know, to give an example, imagine setting New Year's resolutions when you're hungover, when you've had a long night and shorter sleep, I'm you're sure not really going to be in the best. <laughs> you're not really going to be in the best place to do it. But if you set resolutions, if you plan your strategy from a place of you being in a very good state of mind, what happens is that it is infinitely more productive. And so before I go onto stage to speak, you know, I will have certain routines, whether I do a swim before I go to the venue, or I do a bit of a workout before I go to the venue, I will do something that gets me energized and in a really good state. So the moment 
they introduce me on stage when I'm on there I'm ready to bring the energy to the audience mm. do you ever get nervous I do I would be I would be lying if I said I didn't get nervous uh, I, I I'm a lot less nervous than I used to be uh, and I think that comes with practice you, you know I remember a mentor once said to me nothing beats fear like practice and so when I first started I probably had a lot more nerves now there's some nerves but it's not as much in fact I'm probably more excited than nervous usually the nerves will come if I'm doing something different so for example if I'm brought in to speak to a room of CEOs in which I am the youngest person in that room when I first did that of course I was a little nervous because it's a complete new audience for me and sometimes that can create a bit of imposter syndrome but once I've done it once, the next time I'm a bit more confident. And so the nerves decline over time. So, yes, I do still get a little nervous from time to time. Uh, and especially when the setup uh, is different to something I've been used to. Mm. It's interesting you say that. I used to get really nervous to teach fitness. because mm. it, It's a bit like public speaking where you're right in front of all these people staring at you and they don't do anything. <laughs> They're waiting for you to, to tell mm. them what to do. Um, and then I got really comfortable with it and I get into that mm. flow state and I don't think about it at all. But mm. if I get asked to teach somebody else's class or if I'm under assessment, there's loads of other instructors watching me, I might then feel nervous again. Mm. Mm. Very similar to mine. <laughs> yeah, so I've been obsessed with personal development since I was mm. a child. And one of my first books that I read was Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan mm. Jeffers. It's so old, uh, <laughs> it has orange pages. Um, but it is a timeless book. And I believe that if anyone reads it at any time, it will change their life in some way or another. Mm. And it's one of them books that you could dip back into over time. Um, but that was one of my first books. And I literally have shelves full of personal development books now. Mm. And there was a time where I was sort of outreaching all the time, looking for answers, because I always felt that if anything you go through, there's always an answer out there, because there's so many mm. people on this planet, someone else has had that problem, and they found a solution. And it's in a book. Mm. And then I thought, well, actually, maybe the answers are within me. And it was when I got to that stage that I thought it's now time for me to write my own personal development book. And then mm. I started writing my book. So I'm interested to know with you, like what was your first personal development book? And did you also have a light bulb moment where you felt like it's now time to write my book? Mm. So on, on the first question, the first personal development book that I came across, there were two actually, was when I spent some time at my uncle's place in Singapore one summer holiday. And he, you know, at the time he was a manager at a, at a big company. And so he would have a library of leadership books. And the two that I started reading when I looked through his, his, uh, his shelf was Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich and Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So those were the first two books that I read within the field of personal development. Now, I'm going to admit, I, I probably didn't absorb as much as I should have the first time around because I just read it for curiosity's sake it was only when I reread them years later that more of what it said started to make sense and for example when I when I read about the mastermind in Napoleon Hill's book that's when I started to look for masterminds myself but at the at the, at the age when I read it which was probably when I was 14 or 15 I don't think I was ready to explore some of those things that they were talking about but it kind of set the foundation for my interest in personal development. And with regards to the second question on the book, the honest answer is I, I wasn't planning to write a book. And then the opportunity sort of came up where I got asked, would you be interested to write a book? And I had never thought about writing a book. So I didn't really have an idea on the go. 
But when I started to reflect on my personal and professional journey, it became obvious to me that the thing I wanted to write about was energy. Now, the working title was actually Energy is Everything. Now, through the editing process, that got shortened to Energize. And the reason is because I went for a period when I was in the, in the corporate world where I had zero energy. And I felt lost. I felt depressed. I, I was in an industry where I thought I was going to be successful, but clearly I wasn't following the financial crisis. And I charted my journey from that point to where I, where I am today. And I realized I feel so energized every morning I wake up. And I really wanted to speak to that journey. How did I get from that point where I was completely drained mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually to where I am today in which I wake up filled with possibilities over limitations? And the second reason was I remembered that every time I would come off stage, I would often have a number of people come up to me and say, Simon, I was so energized by your talk on stage. You know, if I could only have a small percentage of your energy, I could go on and accomplish so much. And so again, I really wanted to speak to that. How do we get to that point where we do feel high energetically, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? So that's where the idea for the book came together. Mm, I love that. And I've listened to you say similar things and it really reminds me of my everyday life because as a fitness teacher, although people see it as you're a motivator, I actually feel like I'm an energizer. Mm. So I show up and I give them energy, mm. but at the same time, I feed off their energy. And if I have an amazing class, it's because we've had that mutual exchange. Mm. So I'm wondering as well, if you've ever had that, like with an audience that you've got nothing back and what do you do in those circumstances? <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I mean, the the... the... The thing about speaking is you can never predict how audiences are going to be. So you will get some audiences where it, it is high energy, they, they're very engaged, they've got lots of questions to ask. And then you will have some other audiences where they prefer to ask their questions in private. And so I remember going to, to do one of my first talks in Dubai. And I had never done a talk in the Middle East before, so I had no idea to, of, of what to expect from a culture point of view. And so I did my talk and I was like, do we have any questions? And I got two, I managed to get two questions from the audience, which supposedly according to other conferences in the area was actually a good number. Uh, but for me, I usually get a lot more questions. The funny thing was when the talk finished and I came down from stage, there was a long queue of people waiting to ask their question. So the setup there was they preferred to ask, ask it privately rather than to open it, the question in front of everyone. And, and so, yeah, I've had to deal with very different audiences, but that's actually helped me to understand people better as well, culturally, in terms of the setup of the event, uh, the background, the demographics. Mm. I think it's taught me a lot as well through the process. Yeah, I can relate to that, actually, because I do some talks in schools mm. and I talk about body confidence. So I touch on body image and eating mm. disorders, which are quite personal topics. And with young girls, they quite often don't want to speak up. Mm. And the reason that I'm there is because they are insecure or vulnerable. Mm. Um, and so therefore, questions that I've had from other schools, I'll just hold them in a bag, if you like. Mm. And then at the end, when I say, does anyone have questions? If they don't, I say, well, this is a question I got asked at the last mm. school. And this is the answer. And quite often they're nodding away and they're taking all mm. the information in. I, I, and that's why sometimes 
when it's when I, when I talk about sensitive topics like like you uh, like you do, I like to do it on Zoom or a virtual platform because what you can do to make it inclusive is you can say if you have a question that you don't want to share publicly, you can send me the question privately, and I'll share the question, but I won't mention your name. And it's amazing what happens when you do that. I remember doing that for one uh, virtual talk I did. And I had about six messages privately into my chat with questions people had. And so I would just reference the question without mentioning the name. And suddenly I saw in the in the public chat that people resonated with the answer. And, and so I think having that ability to have people send you a question privately, that was a great tool to make it more inclusive. I think quite often we're all thinking the same things, but people are just too scared to say so. <laughs> Definitely. So I wanted to ask you on your website, it says that you're stereotypically Chinese in the fact mm. that you learned martial arts as you were growing up. Mm. I also have a martial art background and I believe that every child should go to martial arts because it's given me such a good foundation for the rest of my life. And the three top things that I've taken from it are the white belt, which I likened to when I did my first mm -hmm. speaking course, actually, because I felt like I am a white belt, like I'm such mm -hmm. a beginner. So it's that beginner mindset of always arriving somewhere with an empty cup so you can always mm -hmm. learn. And also when I got my black belt, I was then told that this is the start of your journey. So it was never mm -hmm. the destination, which I originally thought it was. It's now the beginning of what I'm going to learn next. Mm -hmm. And there was also the, my passion for teaching, because with mm -hmm. every grade that you achieve you then teach the next level so you're a student and a teacher at the same time mm. so i'm interested to know if you resonate with those if you like them and if you have any of your own that you want to share definitely i, I mean i funnily enough i got into martial arts when i was young purely because my, my dad was worried that my brother and i would get bullied uh, you, you know we grew up in a in a town in which we were one of only about you know, we were part of maybe six to eight Chinese students in the school we went to. And now I'm not talking just a year of our school, but entire school. We were only uh, a group of about six to eight Chinese students. And so at the time, I mean, now it's very different. There's a lot more diversity in the students that attend the school. But my dad was worried that we would get bullied. And so he signed us up to karate class. And we ended up doing that until we were early teenagers. And I resonate with the lessons you shared. And looking at that period of my life and applying the lessons then to who I am now, I like the idea of the white belt mentality because I think that if we always embrace the eternal student mindset, it equips us with the tools and resources to adapt to whatever the world throws our way. It means we're always learning, we're always humble, and we're always understanding that there is so much more that we don't know. And that's what it means to live with a white belt mentality. And I think also the grading system that I went through, you know, you go from white belt all the way to black belt. It taught me to celebrate the small wins. You know, you don't have to be a black belt, but just getting from one belt to the next, you should celebrate that. You should look at the progress you're making, look at how far you've come. And I think those things are important. And we can often forget that in, in how busy the world is. You know, we're so focused on the black belt that we forget just how far we've progressed. Mm. And so those are probably the two things that come to my mind. And then to be told when you get to the black belt that it's only the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And, and that's where we, 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 we get to the concept of never being a finished article. We're always a work in progress. The black belt is merely a sign 
that you've learned all there is to know in that formal setting. And now the rest is up to you. How are you going to take what you know and use it as a foundation to go to that next level? So I mentioned to you before that I went to Thailand and I went mm. away for a month and I had the most amazing life experience. I've never been away. I turned 40 in Thailand. So I'd had my whole life with never traveling alone because I had my first daughter young and I've got mm. two children. Um, but it was just such an amazing experience. And I got onto the aeroplane, the 11 <laughs> and a half hours long back from uh, Bangkok. And I met this guy, as you do by the toilets mm. and you have a chat with someone and he says, I have just had the month of hell from Thailand. And I was like, what? And I had to talk to him more because I thought, how is this possible? I've just had the mm. best month of my life in Thailand. How have these two people had completely different experiences in the same place? And as I got chatting to him, and we were chatting for a very long time, mm. it turned out there was all of these other issues going on and he started telling me about trauma and everything. And he, mm. he then suggested that he needed a coach. And I, I gave him my business card, mm. but I'm just wondering, with you, do you feel, because obviously you're a little bit more out there than I am. So mm. many more people know you as a coach. Do people, do you find yourself coaching people for free everywhere you go? And if you hear people talking to you about certain things, do you sometimes just play ignorant and don't say anything? Or do you get involved in all the conversations? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I find that I'm, I'm always coaching now. So it, it's funny you mentioned your encounter on the airplane because it reminded me of a trip to Japan in, in 2017. It, it was a long flight, just like it was from from Thailand to the UK. And when most people were sleeping on the plane, I remember going to the pantry area where the staff were having their meals when when the rest of the passengers were sleeping. So I got chatting to one of the staff in the pantry while he was catching up with his meal. And I just got curious as to his career in, in the flight industry. And by the end of that conversation, he said, how do I find out more about your work? And I shared with him my social media. And by the time I got to the hotel in Japan, he wanted to have a further conversation. And so what I took from that is that if you are a coach, naturally, when people have conversations with you, you're always coaching. Because the only way to sell coaching is through giving people an experience. Because coaching as a concept is quite abstract. If you've never had coaching before, you have no idea what to expect. So for me, I'm always curious about people. I remember catching up with another friend recently and she said to me, Simon, I'm, I'm still in the process of researching and writing my book. And I got curious. I said, how long have you been writing the book? And she said, oh, it's my sixth year now. I'm, I'm still working towards getting a publisher and, and trying to get it out of the world. And naturally, my next question was, what stopped you making the progress you want? And so even though it sounds like I'm coaching, it's just coming from a place of curiosity. I'm just really curious as to what you're telling me and what i find is that people can get drawn to that because we're not often challenged by what we do you know we're not often challenged in the way we think so when we do have that challenge from someone like ourselves who are coaches then it gets people thinking and then the natural question is you know how do i get more of that and so i find myself naturally coaching people through conversations i have uh, through questions I get asked, whether it's at speaking events, whether it's through uh, networking events. And it just gets people more interested about the work I do and how I can help them. Mm. Whereas I find myself having a lot of conversations in the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> 
it seems to be the place that everyone talks about all their problems <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting though because you do get to speak to you know a wide variety of people and mm. you can sort of feel their energy as well when it is like that and it's like a nice natural conversation and then mm. it either leads to something or it doesn't but certain times you have conversations with people and you, you challenge them why mm. not why don't you do that why don't you try this and you can just come up with a load of excuses that you can then mm. sort of feel the energy and you know that this conversation is not going to go any further yeah. that you'll yeah. be wasting your time to continue mm, definitely and i think that's why i would only take things forward if i feel that the person is ready you know if somebody shares a challenge with me then after we talk about that challenge i might say something again it's a very soft curious question such as what would life be like if you didn't have to worry about those things you mentioned? If you had the freedom to pursue the dreams that you just shared with me, what could life look like for you? Now, what's happening in that process is I'm now taking their mind to a place in the future where things are a lot better than they are in the present. And that for me is beautiful because then I can see what lights them up. What is it that gets them excited? And then if I feel that they are ready and that they're open to being challenged, I might then say, would you be interested in having a more powerful conversation to dive deeper into this and to make some small steps towards making all of that happen? Now, if it's a clear yes, then we we book a time in a diary and we have a further conversation before we agree if we go into a partnership together. If it's not, then no, no, no deal, no big deal. And you're going to meet a lot of people in your journey. And I think that the more experiences like that you can give them, the more they begin to understand the value that you can bring to the table. So I want to ask you about flow. Mm. So I found, as I said to you, with my fitness industry journey, being an instructor, that I easily get into flow, that I actually don't have to plan my exercises anymore. Mm. I, if I've got great tunes, the tunes will energize me and mm. it just sort of happens. And sometimes I can look at myself from outside of myself and be like, wow, who's that girl? That's amazing. Mm. But if I ever get into that position of self-doubt and I've had both of these doing public speaking because I'm a newer public speaker. Mm. So I've had some instances where it's gone amazing and I've had that out of body experience and thought, what is she saying? <laughs> How can I recreate that? Do that again. And then other times where I feel like maybe it's the times that I add a lot more pressure mm. that I'll, I could then go into my thinking part of my brain and think, what are they thinking while I'm saying this? And then I've already mm. gone off somewhere while I'm talking and then something happens. Maybe I'll, I'll um, miss up, miss a word or something goes wrong and I'm not in flow mm. anymore. Has that ever happened to you? And do you have any tips to avoid that happening? It has happened to me before. Uh, and I think for anyone listening, it probably has happened to you as well. Uh, we're, we're all human. And, and, and that means we've got two voices in our heads. You've got the guide and you've got the critic. Now, ideally, we want to amplify the voice of the guide and silence the voice of the critic. But the reality is it's always going to be an internal struggle between the two. And so what I found to be very important in the journey of making sure that we amplify more the voice of the guide is to understand that there are always two sales that happen. The second sale is selling you to others. And the first sale is selling you to you. And until you can sell you to you, the second will always remain the challenge. So once you trust in the skills, the abilities and the gifts that you have, it makes it a lot easier to manage your relationship with the critic inside of you. So you end up being aware 
that even though it's good to have a critic, you need to manage that voice so that you can give oxygen to the, to the guide. So that's what's really helped me over time is to simply trust that I've got value to bring. Often that's the biggest hurdle to overcome. The fact that we look at the competition in what we do and we say, well, how am I going to succeed? How am I going to stand out? And straight away before we've even begun, we've already stopped our progress because we've let the critic jump in. We've sabotaged ourselves and we haven't believed that we also have something to offer on the table. So for me, it comes down to how we speak to ourselves and how we become our own cheerleader, which allows us to suppress that voice that is trying to sabotage us and promote the voice that is going to help us step out of our comfort zone and build our confidence. Mm. Would you say that's a practice? Because I don't mm. often have the cheerleader until after an event and I feel amazing that I've done it and I'm proud of myself. <laughs> but I believe that, and it never stops me, um, the bigger the thing that I put myself out for, the louder the critic. Mm. And that's why confidence is never a prerequisite. We only get confidence once we've done something we didn't think we were able to do. What actually comes before confidence is courage. The courage to do something you've never done before. The courage to speak to an audience, to share your message. Courage comes first and then confidence builds. Once that confidence starts building, guess what? You have even more courage to do things you've never done before. But the very first step requires you to have the courage to do that. That is why, and if you imagine this visual for a moment, imagine a staircase going up. And the staircase begins from where you are now, and it goes all the way up to the top right of the paper to where you want to be. Now, that first step will be a very high vertical. And then the rest of the steps will be fairly small. Because for many of us, it's just simply getting past that first hurdle. Once you've gone past that first hurdle, the other steps come naturally because you're building momentum. And once you build momentum, you build confidence. Once you build confidence, you have more courage. And so that's how the process generally tends to work. Mm. It's interesting you say that because I always consider myself a confident person. But mm. I call myself confident because... I have the courage to do stuff. I never really thought mm. about it as courage because mm. I will do that talk in front of that many people that I'm scared of and the inner critic comes in and says, oh, you can't. <laughs> and I say, yeah, I'm confident enough to do that because I'm okay with getting it wrong. I'm okay with being a messy human because mm. a lot of the stuff that I talk about is personal. So I am gonna be myself. So I'm happy mm. to show up as me. And quite mm. often in doing that and being vulnerable, it opens the door for people to return mm. it. And mm. they quite often do. So we have even had tears in a talk and people have mm. you know, come to me and spoke about it afterwards. And mm. I, yeah, I always thought that was confidence, but I guess it really is courage. Mm. Exactly, because especially when you're going to the unknown, there's no reference point for you to work off of. And, and that's why we, we need to discover some courage. And courage is not the absence of fear. I mean, I think we've established we're all going to have fears of some degree. Courage is that belief that you will be okay despite your fears. And once you overcome those hurdles, you know, you walk out, your chest is high, you're standing taller. That for me is confidence. Now you're walking different. Now you're showing up different. And that's because you now know that you can overcome what came before. And that is one of the most powerful benefits of showing up every single day and taking intentional steps out of our comfort zone to know that you can overcome what the world throws your way, to know that you can do things you've never done before and survive. Having that knowledge is so powerful for your personal transformation. Mm, absolutely. 
And it is an everyday thing, isn't it? Because some days you feel like it and some days you don't. And you still have to show up anyway. <laughs> Indeed. And that's why I say entrepreneurship is a game that is not for everyone. Because when you embark on the path of entrepreneurship, you are challenged to step outside of your comfort zone every single day. So it does relate quite a lot to fitness then. I was talking to one mm. of my clients today who said that she's bored and she asked me, can I give her some like new, fun, exciting <laughs> workout, which obviously they always do in the fitness industry. There's this, you know, a new craze that's going on. There's, there's a new piece of equipment. Mm. And I said to her, if you can stick through that first bit of boredom, then you know you're in it for the long run. Because mm -hmm. if you ask anyone that's been doing fitness for years and years and years, they've had so many times they've been bored. So let's celebrate that boredom because <laughs> it shows that you're one of those people now. You don't mm. have to put something else in because actually like the consistency is what counts. If you can keep doing that basic thing that works, keep doing that. It's, it's so true and very often overlooked. You know, I, I often say to people, put this, put this in consideration for a moment. If you were to work out just for, let's say, 30 minutes every single day for the next three years, would you look and feel different to who you are today? Now, everyone in the audience says, yes, of course. If I do 30 minutes of exercise every single day for three years, I'll look and feel different. Now, the next question is, can you stick to doing 30 minutes of exercise every day for three years? And for a lot of people, that suddenly becomes challenging. But what that tells us is that to become successful, we must be consistent. And consistency is not always sexy. It's not always sexy to be consistent because it can be boring. You're doing the same thing again and again and again. But as Denzel Washington so eloquently put when he received the award for his film Fences, he said, without commitment, you will never begin. More importantly, without consistency, you will never finish. I like that. I haven't heard that one. Um, so I want to ask you about being exhausted and finding balance. As a fitness instructor, and many people who might listen to this or people who are in my world, quite often, because we're using our bodies to as a way of earning a living, mm. and you're using energy in the form of fitness, you can quite easily get to that point of exhaustion before you realize that you've run out of energy. Mm. And even people in the normal world, corporate world, who have a job, get to that point of exhaustion, book a holiday, and then end mm. up getting sick on the holiday because they haven't had that balance of mm. having little rests here and there. What would you say to that? What is your advice? The very first place to start is deepening your self-awareness. I'm a big believer that you cannot have self-development without self-awareness. What I mean by this is reflect on your average day, week, and month. When do you feel most energized? When do you tend to feel exhausted? Once you have that data, the challenge you have is to now adjust your schedule so that you can address the insights you now got. So for example, if you feel exhausted these times, what can you do different? That means you can sustain the energy for a longer period. If you know something energizes you, how can you do more of that? How can you manage your calendar so that you're working with your body and not against it? And all of that begins with awareness because we all have different lifestyles. We have different constraints. We have different obligations. So what works for you might work different for someone else. And that's why taking a step back making sure that in your calendar, you have blocks of me time. You, you know, I remember putting this question to an audience recently where I asked them, how many of you in your calendar right now have business meetings? 
and everyone puts their hands up. Now, of course, when we get a business meeting coming to our calendar, we're quick to click yes, and now it's in our calendar. How many people have social events booked in your calendar? Everyone's hands went up. How many of you have holiday plans booked into your calendar? Most hands went up. And then I asked, how many of you have me time booked in your calendar? And only one or two hands went up. And what that tells me is that unless we block out me time in our diaries, there will always be something else that will pop in, take that time away, and suddenly we have no time. And so we've got to be careful to guard our time to make sure that we have periods where we can disconnect, step back, reflect, and simply just be. Because if we're doing, we're not giving ourselves the space to connect all of these dots. Mm. You know, we look at history. I don't know if these are true or not, but I think there are a lot of wisdom in them. Isaac Newton, gravity discovered sitting under a tree with the apple falling on his head. Archimedes, sitting in the bathtub, Eureka, he discovers displacement theory. Or Thomas Edison, sitting by the fishing lake, catching no fish because he has no bait. So no one, not even the fish, would disturb him. And they would credit these moments of slowing down as space for their creative insight to break through. It's so true. And as you were saying all of that, I was sinking in my chair. (laughs) (laughs) This is literally me. And although I'm a coach, that is something that I do. I put things in the diary and I've always considered myself like one of my values is being a woman of my word. Mm. Therefore, if it's in the diary, I will do it. If Mm. I've said I will be there, I will be there. And so therefore taking something out and learning to say no has been a challenge. Mm. And it was actually Thailand, one of the things that I came back with. Um, in Thailand, they talk about sabai sabai, and it means mm. relax, relax. They do it in Mai Thai, and they took like general conversations you have with people who are at work. I met a guy who was like running a hotel, and just in one conversation, he just said sabai sabai. So he's mm. talking about his daily life. I will do this work, and I will go home and relax, relax. Mm. And we never do that here. We're always rush, rush. And it's it's almost like you're given a trophy for doing more and being more stressed. Mm. And I actually had Sabai Sabai tattooed on my arm. (laughs) (laughs) Island changed me that much and a picture of mountains because I love the energy in the mountains. Mm. But I I vowed that when I come home, I'm going to make sure that I get a bit of Sabai Sabai in Mm. my calendar every week. And I now do that. So every Thursday after I teach my class first thing, I do that sauna time where everyone Mm. starts talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is interesting, though, just having that one moment. Thursday is now my creative day that I literally Mm. get enough content for the whole rest of the next week just Mm. from slowing down. Mm. One of the things I had to do with my coach was talk about energy on a spectrum like this. So if you under eat, you're below on energy. And Mm. then sometimes when you're so below the lines, you then physiologically, your body forces you to then binge eat. And the reason why is so that you can get a quick load of energy and it brings Mm. you up. And then you end up in this pattern of all, nothing, all, nothing. Mm. Um, How can we find that balance in the middle? Because Mm. they say with work that a lot of people or in relationships, they say you give, you know, the best of you to work and then you give the rest of you to your relationship or to your family. Mm. I think first step is understanding your priorities. You, you know, a great exercise to do that I did a, a number of years back is write down a list of the things that you say to others are important to you. So it could be number one is family. Number two is my health. So write down the things that are important to you and then make another list and write down where you spend most of your time and energy on and then compare the two. So if you put on one, on one list that family is the most important, yet you spend most of your time and energy in the office or flying around the world, then of course, now you've got a disconnect. 
So start to see how big of a disconnect do you have between the list of what you say is important and how you actually spend your time. And I think that starts to give you a really clear picture as to what has to change. Part of it also is understanding that balance is part of everything. You know, we've spoken about the fact you can't always be on. You have to have some time for yourself. There has to be a bit of a balance between doing and being. Otherwise, you enter this very tragic scenario of living as if you are never going to die and dying having never really lived. With food, it's the same. You know, you want to eat in moderation, but you have to eat to consume and get energy for the day ahead. So for me, there's a term I, I use in a book called Think Inside the Bento Box. Now, if you look at Japanese culture, one of the beauties of a bento box is that you get a variety of different food. You get some meat, you get fish, you get vegetables, you get rice, you get radishes and so on. But it's very balanced and it's portion controlled. So what happens is you get everything you need, but it's very much in moderation and balance. And so we have to think about those things ahead of time. And to make it even easier, we have to design an environment around us that makes it impossible not to succeed in those areas. So, for example, if I want to eat healthy and I've got a chocolate bar and junk food in my cupboard, then guess what? As much as I want to be healthy, when hunger strikes, I'm naturally going to go for the thing that satisfies that the quickest. But if I eliminate those foods and have things such as fruits or nuts or water around my environment, when I'm hungry, I'm going to go to what's nearest to me. So what I'm doing here is I'm consciously aware of designing that environment that is aligned to who and where I want to be. Hmm. And then what happens if you slip outside of the bento box? Do you consider it a failure? No, I, I think that at the end of the day, there is never going to be such thing as perfection. You know, I'm not perfect myself. And many people we think are perfect. They're not perfect as well. We're all human. For me, what's most important is not getting it right 100% of the time. It's getting it right the majority of the time. So if you're doing uh, a balanced diet, you're eating well 60% of the time, that is far better than eating unhealthy 60% of the time. Because if you're mostly doing those good habits 60% of the time, over time, that's going to show. Mm. You're never going to be able to show up 100% every single day. I guess it's the same as you don't go 100% into eating healthy because mm. you also need a balance of having a little bit of this here or there and being able to be okay with that. Indeed, definitely. Same with exercise, definitely not over-exercising. <laughs> because the industry does that. The fitness industry talks about all or nothing, go hard or go home. And mm. actually, we do need to have rest. That's where we grow, recover, repair. We need to be able to eat all foods because all foods do have a place. Mm. And that's why I think one thing to keep in mind is that if you want to make meaningful progress, make consistency over intensity the focus. Because if you go all in straight away, you're going to burn out and you're going to pull back very quickly. But if you start small, but are consistent in your actions, what's going to happen is you're going to stick to them. And that's why you have to make consistency over intensity the focus. You sound like a personal trainer. <laughs> have you ever been a personal trainer <laughs> i've not been a personal trainer before <laughs> um can i talk to you about the energy spectrum i've heard mm -hmm. about the energy spectrum where you've got fear on one side mm. and love on the other side i'm not sure if yeah. you're familiar with that concept yeah. i'm wondering if you've ever experienced something where you've been in that deep state of fear and you've reminded yourself of the spectrum and thought channel it to love and somehow i've managed mm. to do that with a positive outcome I think the last time when I was 
knee deep in fear. Uh, although in hindsight, I, I didn't know how to get myself out of it at the time, but I was knee deep in fear was when I failed my second year of university. Uh, and, and that's because I felt so much shame, uh, you know, to come back home to a Chinese family that had high expectations and hopes that I was going to do well academically. And to tell them I've just failed three out of four exams and I have to repeat my year at university and I need help to fund it because, you know, I couldn't afford it on my own. I felt huge amounts of shame to be able to tell that to my family and then for them to then tell their friends that, you know, our grandson or our son failed a year at university. But I was also fearful because I, I, I thought to myself, I've killed my future. You know, because when I apply for internship programs or graduate programs, I'm not going to get past the first round because I failed three out of four exams. So that was probably the last time I recall where I was so deep in fear that it that it really consumed me. You know, I couldn't sleep. I had nightmares about my future. Uh, I was just in a complete limbo. I, I was lost as to what my next steps were. I, I think if I go to the other side of the spectrum on love, I think that when when I started to do the things I loved and I started to be around people that I loved and who loved me, that really changed uh, the energy that I brought to everything I did. And it really showed me how powerful love is as a form of energy. Mm, absolutely. I actually follow love quite a lot. So mm. in terms of even just fitness pursuits, people often say to me when they watch my social media, Oh my God, Nicola, you're doing so much. You do this, you do this, you do this. And there was a really nice, you know, the um, reels that you get where someone's already made the words and the music. And it was about mm. me having a load of hobbies. And, and it was literally me that I thought, I have to make this video mm. with all the different hobbies that I have. But it's because I don't like to do what everyone else is doing. Like mm. I know, for example, with the Olympic lifting, um, if I did that and just did that, I could mm. be amazing at it. Mm. Like I'm quite happy that I'm not going into the Olympics doing that because mm. I don't love it that much that I just mm. want to do that. Mm. I, I love Kung Fu now, so I do that. Mm. And I love fire performing, so I do that. Mm. And there's so many new things that I also still want to try. I could do with an eighth day of the week, probably. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I just follow my heart. And if, if I don't love it anymore, then I won't do it anymore. Mm. I, I love that because for me, when I heard you speak, it brought to my mind that one of the things I love about what I do is the creative side. I, I'm a creative thinker, so I love the creative aspect of it. And so with the diverse network I have, it means that I have so much fun thinking up creative projects. So when I when I launched the book, I, I partnered with my friend who is a bartender at a, uh, at a place at the Connaught, and he put together an energized cocktail. So you could get served an energized cocktail on a copy of my book. And the next thing I did is I partnered with a friend to put together one of the world's first book launches in the metaverse. Uh, and now I'm looking to partner with an artist uh, to create an original piece of art inspired by my book, where we can then auction or sell it off and raise funds for charity. Now, for me, what I love about all of these examples is the creative process. I love taking two seemingly very different industries, bringing it together and creating a bit of magic. And, and that's what really gives me energy. Well, you never know. This is where you might see me again in the future then. Because having had a chat with a few things about fitness and, and energy really matches. So <laughs> I can see a few light bulbs might go off in the future. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. <laughs> so lastly, I just want to ask you, 
Um, I often have like a word of the year and it just sort of happens by accident. And mm. I haven't really had one this year, but when I was in Thailand, again, a lot more free time and more inspired, I found myself saying this quote quite often. And it was, if it's an experience, the answer is yes. Mm. So I'd kind of like to coin that quote as my own. But mm. I'm wondering if you have any that you've coined or if there's any that you like religiously follow. Mm. I think there's so many uh, quotes that come to my mind that have impacted my life. I mean, the one that comes to my mind now that I've I've I said years ago, which has stuck with me because it's been such a big part of my life, is that if you don't let go of the thoughts holding you back, what you want becomes what you let go of. And the reason it stuck with me is because we live in the feeling of our thinking moment to moment to moment. And understanding the power of that quote reminded me that we have power over our thoughts. We are not our thoughts. We are merely the observer of them. And so once we have that awareness, we can become both the sculpture and the sculptor of our life. And so that's why that quote for me was so powerful when I was discussing it with a friend years ago. And that kind of stuck with me over the years. Mm, how has that helped you in your own life? It's, it's helped me in my own life in terms of understanding which thoughts to believe in to follow and which thoughts to dismiss uh, and it led me to discovering a word called pronoia you know paranoia is this feeling that people are out there to sabotage my progress where pronoia is the belief that the universe is conspiring in your favor so by by living life through that lens i'm always moving forward with a level of humility you know when something happens unexpected i'm not saying why me why did it happen to me i'm thinking well what can i learn from this what is the opportunity here? How can I use this as fuel to come back stronger? And I find that when I operate from that level of thinking, what happens is that it's incredible how you can shape reality into something that works for you. Mm, I forgot that I read that actually in your book, that word pronoia, I'm going to write that on my vision board <laughs> because I do do that. And I think a lot of people, the default is the negative, isn't it? Mm. So for mm. example, when my daughter went to her new school, it was whatever, don't make any friends. What if mm. this happens? What if that happens? And I said to her, what if you make loads of friends? Mm. And I thought everything you say, let's just turn it into the positive because you don't know you could get there and it could be the best day of your life. Mm. So mm. expect the best. <laughs> and it goes back to something we said right at the beginning, which is, what you bring into your mind, what you bring into your thinking, you bring into reality. Mm, 100%. <laughs> well, I've manifested you being here today. So <laughs> thank you very much. I'm really grateful for you being here. If people want to hear more about you or your book, where can they go? Sure. So you can find all the relevant links on simonalexanderong.com. Uh, in terms of social media, I'm on all the major platforms, but the two I use the most are LinkedIn and Instagram. The handle on Instagram is at Simon Alexander O. Amazing. I'll put all of those links in the show notes as well. Thank you very much for being here, Simon. Perfect. Thank you so much for inviting me on.